I, I have known for well over a decade that this was militarily unwinnable and that all that we were doing was basically with our military was putting a, an illusion or a cover over the disaster that was happening. As a prosecutor, you don't want Columbo on the jury. You don't want uh, someone trying to figure out who done it? I love going uh, competing for the fans. I, you know, I get energy. I ride the wave, the emotion during the race, especially over the last closing couple laps, as the crowd really is cheering you on. And you, you come out through the access tunnel, and that's when you expect the roar of you know seventy thousand fans, and it, it was quiet. You're listening to Pod Sui, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Taliban has been on the move at breakneck speed ahead of the U.S.'s withdrawal from Afghanistan scheduled for the end of the month. United States to send in troops to evacuate the embassy. Retired Lieutenant Colonel Daniel L. Davis now serves as a senior fellow at Defense Priorities. He talked to Chris Renwick. You know, I don't think anybody expected it to happen this fast, including myself. Uh, I actually thought it might be as fast as six months after our withdrawal. I, I, I didn't even anticipate it being this fast of a virtual disintegration of the of the uh, Afghan national security forces. And first, let me just talk about, about the military aspect, because that's primarily what this is. It's not that the Taliban has this army that's just rolling over and, you know, and winning all these battles. As a matter of fact, most of the now 18 provinces that they have captured the capital of, most of them have been done without fighting. Uh, they have just been negotiating a surrender to the Afghan uh, troops and sometimes in the governor, as was the case with, uh, I believe, Ghazni earlier yesterday. Uh, and, and then it, sometimes there's light fighting. I mean, there's very little that's going on. But but the the bottom line is that they're falling apart because they uh, because of what we have done in the past. The reason why I have been so outspoken that we need to withdraw our troops is because I, I have known for well over a decade that this was militarily unwinnable and that all that we were doing was basically with our military was was uh, putting a, an illusion or a cover over the disaster that was happening. And as long as we stayed there, uh, it was uh, still partially you could cover it over. But and if I could just say one more thing here, uh, this would have happened even if we had not withdrawn. If the Biden had said, you know what, we'll keep it at 2,500 and just let it keep going like the other four administrations before him had, it still would have happened because this has been about a five-year process. And the, the strategy that the Taliban is using right now to close it on, on Kabul is frankly impressive because it's very strategically done into where they started their operations, how they set it up going into it. Uh, and then how they're doing it with such rapidity or uh, speed right now, uh, they are definitely tightening the noose around Kabul. I mean, they have just they taken one province and another after it. It's been very deliberate, and it probably is going to be pretty soon now that they're going to start moving on the capital. Yeah, look, and I think here, and, and look, I, I am no military mind, which is why we, we, we want to pick folks like you and your brain to, to try to figure out and, and make sense of what's happening there. But I think a lot of the danger here, I mean, look, we have our troops there. Our troops there are, are doing our business. They volunteered and, and they are, are constantly in grave danger. And, and so um, I, I think the worry here for us is that, geez, we spend 20 years there. And look, and I, I think it needs to be said also, and I'm sure you would agree with this, that just like you know, a, a, a baby, you got to let them walk, right? You got to let them fall down a couple of times, but you got to let them figure it out. And that's kind of where Afghanistan is. We, we have to let them 
try to make their way and defend themselves and, and figure it out. But we have interest in that area because we don't want and the reason that we went into Afghanistan in the first place is we don't want that to be a haven for terrorist activity, specifically targeting the homeland. So my question to you is with the Taliban's advances, with them making these types of moves in provinces all across the country, uh, at what point do we start to to feel kind of the, the heat and, and some real danger that cells like Al Qaeda or, or ISIS could could, you know, find traction there once again? Yeah, there's two important things to point out, and I'll address the second one you asked first and then go back to the first one because it's also important. Uh, the second one about our national security, that has been the biggest myth that has been perpetuated by all these senior leaders and presidents really since George Bush, uh, that is just not true. Our national security has no relation to what happens on the ground in Afghanistan. It's not as though if our troops weren't there that all of a sudden this risk to our country would go up. That is absolutely untrue. And the reason I can point to the certainty of that is because un despite what many think, the first 9-11 didn't happen because of Afghanistan. It happened because of the twisted bond of Khalid Sheikh Mohammed working with uh, Osama bin Laden. Now, the only reason Afghanistan came into the picture at all was because Obama, uh, Osama bin Laden had just moved from Sudan into, into uh, Afghanistan when Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who had been traveling all over the Middle East and several other capitals and countries, to include even some Western countries, it, working with other terrorists to form this plan, and then he came to get an approval from bin Laden. So now that once he got it, they, they assembled their team there. But most of the preparation for 9-11 was done in Pakistan, was done in mm -hmm. Saudi Arabia, uh, Germany, and even the United States. That's where most of the preparation took place. So there is nothing about Afghanistan that's, that's necessary for our security. That's the first point. The second point, I really agree with you there, that it, what we should have been doing is, is preparing them to take over for themselves and to let them figure it out for themselves in a more uh, structured way uh, instead of the way we had been doing, which is basically doing everything for them, or at least the hard stuff. And we never made them do the hard stuff. Strong winds and heavy storms left over 700,000 consumers, energy, and DTE customers without power for days in the scorching heat. When the power is out at your house, it feels like all you can do is sit around and wait. But are there things you can do around your house in the meantime to minimize any further damage? Chris Renwick spoke with Chuck Bridenstine, the inside guy from WJR's Inside Outside Guys. Hopefully you are not experiencing a power outage as you listen to this, but keep this handy because as we've seen over the past few weeks, you most likely will in the near future. A lot of people, you, you said, lost power three and four times in the last month, month and a half. And one of the things those people probably already discovered is that your sensitive electronics should not be plugged in to an outlet or a receptacle when that power comes back on. And today, that can be everything from your stove to your microwave to your washing machine, uh, uh, certainly your, your televisions and uh, computers, laptops, security systems. <laughs> Uh, all of those things are subject to a power surge that could damage them when the power comes back on. So that'd probably be the first piece of advice we would give people. Chuck, I didn't even realize you had to do that. I'll be totally honest. And I, and it's funny that you say that now because uh, I had an experience. This probably would have been last year. Power goes out. Uh, and uh, I, I swear, I haven't replaced it, but I swear my garage door motor 
sure. has has been going a little slower ever since that outage. And and we had to go up manually, unplug it, plug it back in. I I I don't maybe I just thought I was crazy, but if if that can happen, it's possible. It's possibly uh, what happened to me. You know, it's funny you said that. Uh, just this morning, I installed a new opener at at our house up north on the garage door, and everything is solid state today, and so easily damaged. You know, doing the radio remotes like you have done certainly. You know, we always get Ray, Ray hooks up an uninterruptible power supply so that they don't risk that with, you know, our broadcast equipment. Sure. And moving forward from this, I would suggest to people that you go out and purchase those, not just a surge protector, but literally those devices you and I have seen on the floor at our remotes that have a battery mm-hmm. in them that you mm-hmm. plug into. Uh, they're a yeah. little pricey. You know, they're 50 to 150 bucks, but if it saves you buying a new laptop or, or, you know, an expensive appliance, good Lord, it's worth it. Yeah. Uh, talk to me about uh, some of the other things that we need to look for. Uh, you know, one of the things that came to mind is, is what about our sump pumps? We've had so many people that have been, know, you know, I flooded know. in their basements and, and it's happened multiple times in some cases to some folks, unfortunately. Um, but yeah. something like that is, is that something that we need to look for, especially for people who've been with and, with and without power over, you know, a couple of times over the last couple of months? Certainly. And, and there are some options for backups there. As we know, some are run by municipal water pressure. Some are run by batteries. And you want, if you're going to do a battery backup, maybe your house, is served by a private water well, then you'd have to have a battery backup for that. And in that case, you know, you've got to buy the better units and the better units are going to cost you 250 to $500, depending on, you know, what you actually yeah. look for. So that's huge, Chris. And then also the people that have had, I was just talking to my brother today, they got three feet of water in their basement. He's borrowing oh. one of my generators and, uh, any, uh, appliances, furnaces, uh, Outlets, receptacles, anything that was exposed to that high water really should be checked out by an electrician before you uh, power anything up that's tied to those. You can have a lot of major issues if you don't have that properly checked. Yeah. What else do you think we need to keep our eyes on? Well, for one thing, keep your refrigerator closed. That may sound crazy, but the good ones today will keep food uh, fresh for 24 to 36 hours. The freezer will, too. Uh, and that's that's huge. Just leave it alone. Don't touch it. Don't open it. Um, if you're plugging in a generator to backfeed electricity into your house, hopefully you're only doing it through an approved receptacle. But if you're not, turn the main off to your uh, main power supply in your fuse panel. And quite honestly, that's not bad advice for all of us if we just monitor where DTE and consumers are at. If you turn that main off, you're not going to have a power surge that all of a sudden blows out your compressor on your refrigerator or something like that. A jury of seven men and five women was sworn in for the trial of R. Kelly as the R&B star faces charges of sex trafficking in a New York courtroom. Kelly, whose real name is Robert Kelly, was arrested in 2019 after a documentary on the Lifetime Network brought to light allegations of sexual misconduct and holding women against their will as sex slaves. So how does the prosecution and defense navigate such a high-profile and salacious case? Attorney Todd Flood joined Kevin Dietz for some insight. 
Well, the publicity of the case is, you know, you try to mollify the publicity. Uh, you know, obviously, Kevin, you covered Kwame in this town. And when we had that case, it was very difficult for us to pick a jury in the Bobby Ferguson case in the in the beginning. And then obviously with Kwame and Bobby at the second trial, when you have celebrity status, you know, you, you try to make it so everyone relates to we all put our pants on one leg at a time. We all do. You know, we're all humans. Um, as defense attorneys, uh, uh, we try to put that out there. As prosecutors, you try to put it out there as, you know, ego and narcissism and uh, paint the picture of, of, you know, this is a kid in a candy store type thing. Um, so there's different slants as it relates to how you portray your client or how you tr- portray the, the government's interest um, because they each have theories in the case and you try to um, – get those theories across early on and you want to pick a fair uh, a fair juror you know you you want people to be able to set aside biases and prejudice and you know it's very difficult in new york obviously it's going to be very difficult but you first have to attempt to impanel a jury um before you can change a venue you first have to attempt to pick 12 uh jurors that uh, can stand fair and impartial and uh, that's what they're going to attempt to do, is to set aside biases and prejudice. Um, and it's difficult when you have such media, you know, coverage in this case. Uh, obviously, it's every day in Chicago and every day in New York. Um, as a footnote to this case, we have one of our own up there defending R. Kelly, uh, Nicole Blank, who is a uh, former Wayne County prosecutor, former, former Macomb County prosecutor. Uh, I've worked with her on several cases. She's up there defending R. Kelly. And, um, you know, and she's going to do exactly what, you know, we talk about, basically trying to make it so when she picks this jury, um, she gets a fair and impartial jury that can set aside all the biases and prejudices. Yeah, some people say that, uh, you know, these trials are won and lost in jury selection. Uh, do pr- prosecutors and defense attorneys are looking for different things in jurors? What, what would prosecutors look for in a juror in, in this kind of case that, uh, that R. Kelly's involved in? Well, you know, here's the, here's the thing that I always, um, I'm always fearful of, but as a prosecutor, you don't want Columbo on the jury. You don't want uh, someone trying to figure out, you know, who done it. And that also goes somewhat true for the defense attorneys. But the prosecutor wants to have a juror that is ultimately someone that can follow common sense and facts. And the common sense and facts, uh, it's like building a recipe. If, you know, George Crockett, may rest in peace, one of our great judges in here always used, uh, and Frank Murphy always used the lemon meringue pie and the ingredients to a lemon meringue pie. If I, the prosecutor, show the elements necessary for the ingredients in that lemon meringue pie, you know, is it enough to prove beyond a re- reasonable doubt that it is X? That's, you know, that's the type of matter of fact stuff. I don't need you to guess. I don't need you to, I need you to use common sense, follow facts, and did I prove it beyond a reasonable doubt? Now, that reasonable doubt, you know, is not beyond a shadow of a doubt. It's it's your common sense and um, what you use in every day uh, making decisions. Uh, as a defense attorney, obviously, you're going really hard 
at common sense, uh, at uh, uh, reasonable doubt? And is it something you would trust with a major decision in your life? Did the prosecution, this witness or this witness or this witness that he put on or she put on, would you trust that person beyond a reasonable doubt if that person had some kink in the chain as far as his testimony goes? Those are the types of things that... Um, you know, we're going to be looking for as both prosecutions, follow facts, follow common sense, make that happen. Um, reasonable doubt is not this crazy burden. Defense is going to be looking for jurors that, you know, don't accept everything on face value. That's what you're looking for as far as a defense attorney. A recent survey by the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association shows that 90% of hotels and restaurants say that they can't find enough staffing to keep up with demand. Justin Winslow, president of the Michigan Restaurant and Lodging Association, explains his findings to Paul W. Smith. We all anecdotally kind of see that when we're out dining or if we're traveling, that there just isn't quite the workforce needed. I think we were even surprised how stark some of these numbers were. You, you mentioned that people are closing shifts or closing days outright uh, because they don't have the staff. That, that is a reality. More than 80% of restaurants uh, are just closing for an outright day or at least a lunch because they can't staff it and they don't want to burn out. The loyal people that got in there right now, 81% of hotels are saying, we're not going to sell all of our rooms because we can't flip them in time for the next guests that want to come in. So that demand is out there, and this industry is excited to have that back, but it, it just can't meet that. Uh, that demand, there just isn't the supply of labor uh, out there right now. I, I'll tell you what, uh, to hear some of the stories that I've heard from so many different uh, folks in restaurants and and the way things are, you wonder if they'll ever be able to get back and, and face some sort of normalcy. For example, uh, I heard one guy say that, that the pay has gone up to, I mean, when you figured it out, or they figured it out to me, a, not a, it's not a high-tech job. It's not a job that needs significant training, but a dishwasher in their restaurant was making about $61,000 per year now. $61,000 yeah. per year for the dishwasher. And I'm not putting down dishwashers. I'm just saying, realistically, this is not a field where they had to spend a lot of money for a lot of training over the years to become a dishwasher. It. It's happening. It is the market at work. And you should, if just to put a plug in for our own job board, mrla.org slash jobs, you can find some amazing opportunities there, which is why if anyone is listening and thinking about getting back in, now would be the time. The bonuses are still there. Uh, more than half are offering some sort of signing bonus right now. Wages have surged over 10% uh, in the industry in this year alone. That's more than twice the rate of the economy overall. Uh, opportunities are there. I, I feel like those opportunities won't be as prevalent as we transition into fall. Uh, we know that those supplemental benefits, unemployment benefits, will be expiring early in September. I think there'll be a greater number of people coming back then. Getting ahead of the curve right now would be smart for people who are who anticipate coming back to or starting in this industry. I, I can't imagine that now restaurant owners are going to have to live with that kind of a salary for a dishwasher and survive. Yeah, the the pinch right now in the industry is is twofold, where you have rising inflation or inflation on wages tremendously, as as we talked about, over 10%. Uh, that's certainly a great thing for the workers. It's pinching the limited uh, profitability this industry has. And then you have commodities like uh, beef and chicken uh, skyrocketing as well at the same time. Uh, so the demand is there. The profitability, not there yet. 
for, for the industry, for a lot of people in the industry. I was with a couple of independent restaurateurs last night that say the demand's great, uh, but we don't think we're back to where we were in terms of baseline profitability for almost two years still. So they know that the, the horizon is, is it's still a ways out there for them to, to get back to normal or even what you want to call the new normal. So it's, we're still in a very transitional period right now. So what's it like to go to the Olympics? Mason Furlick is a University of Michigan doctorate student and competed in the 3,000-meter steeplechase over in Tokyo. He joined Kevin Dietz to talk about realizing his lifelong dream and competing under the cloud of COVID. I was one of those little kids that uh, at one point dreaming of making the Olympic team, and, you know, dreams turn into reality. So uh, it's pretty special to finally achieve those goals, um, even though given all the weird circumstances, it was still just as special. Yeah, and uh, it, it so much training goes into it. That was one of the things we were saying is that, uh, you know, we felt a little bad for the athletes who, who really focused uh, years and years and years on, on their sport and uh, got to the pinnacle, the, the best of the best to be able to go to the Olympics and, and then to have it be a COVID Olympics. But, but I, I imagine you make the most of it. What were some of the things that really jumped out at you as, as being different from uh, traditional Olympics? I, I guess it, it even started started with the amount of time you would be over there huh yeah um you know first olympics i don't probably have the best reference point um but covid definitely made it a different games probably unique games um you know for one like you said we weren't allowed to fly into the country until five days before our first event so that means from a time change from ann arbor japan it's 11 hours and so you know you only had four or five days to kind of adjust to the time zone, try to get the sleep schedule um, in sync before, you know, my first competition. So that was, that was tough. Normally team USA track and field, we'd have a training camp over in Tokyo for about 10 days beforehand, you know, actually get settled, get some good training in. Um, and then, you know, the protocols were there. Once we competed, once our last competition was up, we had to depart the country uh, 48 hours after the last race. So it was, a pretty quick trip. I was only in uh, Japan for six days. Um, and so it was a lot of uh, emotion, whirlwind packed and excitement packed in those six days. And it's kind of back to reality back here in Michigan. Did, did the fact that there weren't any fans there have any impact on, on you? Do you, do, do you get energy from the fans or, or was it, is it more just individual on your personal ability to perform? No, yeah, I love I love fans. You know, I, I consider myself maybe like a, a performative athlete, even though it's a track and field distance event. You know, it's individual, not a team sport, but I, I love going there competing for the fans. I, you know, I get energy, I ride the wave, the emotion during the race, especially over the last closing couple laps as the crowd really is cheering you on and you kind of feel that energy and dynamic uh, nature in the stadium. And it was weird, you know, the first time I – stepped onto the Olympic stadium was right before the race. You know, I didn't go over beforehand to see it. So wasn't able to really practice on the track and you come out through the access tunnel and they onto the track. And, you know, that's when you expect the roar of, you know, 70,000 fans. And it, it was quiet, you know, it's just the TV cameras rolling, uh, you know, press in the stands, some coaches and volunteers and officials, but in a 70,000 person stadium, it felt empty. And so, it was this weird dynamic where here I am getting myself psyched up and prepared for the biggest race or one of the biggest races of my life, you know, in front of, on the biggest stage and you walk out there and the stage is quiet. And it was just this weird dichotomy and 
trying to focus in actually during the race. It was just a little, um, yeah, you know, it was, it was hard to be in the environment. And I would have loved to have performed in front of fans. You know, it was, I knew family and friends and everyone back home was watching through the camera lens, but you know, it's, it's different not having that energy in the stadium. And I think for certain athletes, you know, myself included that I, I like having a raucous, you know, energy atmosphere. They'll do it for Pod Sui this week for full interviews or anything else you might have missed. Go to thegreatvoice.com. See you next time.